Oh yeah, we're having a little fun today in our series through the book of Hebrews. Are you ready for the Word of God? Say amen. amen. The book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater in chapter 1 than the angels. In chapter 3, he's greater than Moses. In chapter 4, he is greater than Aaron. You see, in chapter 8, Jesus' covenant is greater in chapter 9, Jesus' sanctuary is greater. And in chapter 10, Jesus' sacrifice is greater. Jesus is greater than all. And the same thing is true today. Amen. Friends, Jesus is greater than our problems. Jesus is greater than any obstacle you're facing. Jesus is greater than our political divisions. Jesus is greater than this whole pandemic. Jesus is greater than all. This is the message that we need today, friends. Last week, Pastor Bob kicked us off, and he invited us to personalize that message in our lives. Fill in the blank. Jesus is greater than... What is that thing for you right now, friends? What obstacle are you facing, and you need this message today in your life? Here's an example. Pastor Bob says Jesus is greater than bone marrow problems for my son. What is that for you? Jesus is greater than what? Something tangible we're going to do throughout this series is out in the foyer, you're going to see a backdrop of a boxing ring, and we have these paper signs that say, Jesus is greater than blank, and then there's some Sharpies. Take a Sharpie and put in that obstacle in your life for which you are trusting that Jesus is greater than all. As you take a picture, send it into the office, and we will post those pictures as encouragements throughout this series. This is the message of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than all. We've been using this boxing image, and so today, let me begin with the story of Rocky III, uh, starring Sylvester Stallone and Mr. T, I pity the fool, arguably the best Rocky movie ever made. In Rocky III, if you haven't seen it, the storyline is as follows. Having become the world heavyweight champion in Rocky II, former working class boxer Rocky Balboa is now rich and famous beyond his wildest dreams. But this has also made him lazy and overconfident. He is then challenged by an up-and-coming fighter named Clubber Lang, played by Mr. T. But his coach Mickey initially wants no part of that. Pressed by Rocky, Mickey confesses that he's actually been hand-picking his opponents in the last 10 fights for Rocky's title defenses in order to spare him from another beating. He explains that Lang, though, is young and powerful, and most of all, he's hungry. And he says, Rocky, you haven't been hungry since you won that belt. You won't last three rounds in the ring with Clubber Lang. He'll knock you to tomorrow, Rock. Rocky, now knowing that he never really defended his title against the best opponents, convinces Mickey to work with him for one last fight. However, despite his promise to Mickey to live in the gym, instead, Rocky trains in a Las Vegas-style environment that's filled with distractions, and he's clearly not taking his training seriously. In contrast, Clubber Lang trains with ruthless determination and vigor. And then when the fight comes in what is a double whammy at the beginning of this film, Rocky loses both his trainer and father figure, Mickey, and then 
has his title stolen by the arrogant, menacing challenger, Clubber Lang. Rocky lost his hunger. The reason I begin with that story, friends, is I want to ask you a spiritual question. Have you lost your hunger for your relationship with the Lord? Meaning other things have come into your life that have now taken the top priority. Dreams that you're chasing after, goals that you're pursuing. Perhaps you, like so many of us, have forgotten the priority that Jesus Christ has in this world and the priority that Jesus Christ wants and deserves to have in your life. And we've started to drift away. D.A. Carson describes this scenario so well. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. Rather, he says, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. Sound familiar? We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. We drift. Can you relate to this tendency in your own heart? I know I certainly can. We love to make excuses. Why do we drift? And what is the consequences for drifting? And what is the solution to this tendency towards drifting. That's the subject of Hebrews chapter 2. Would you turn with me if you have a copy of the inspired and errant Word of God with you? If not, we're going to put the words on the screen, and so that's okay. But what you're going to see in our message today is three parts. We're going to see the warning against drifting. And then we're going to see the focus on Jesus as fully God. And then we will see the focus on Jesus as fully man. The warning against drifting, the focus on Jesus is fully God, and then the focus on Jesus is fully man. Before we get there, why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help. God, thank you so much for preserving this text, this relevant book, almost 2,000 years old, and here we are, we have a copy of it in front of us, God's inspired word. Thank you that it teaches us this unbelievable message that's so relevant in our day, that Jesus really is greater than all. Open our eyes. Help us, Lord, to see wonderful things in your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we look at the first few verses, a word of context about this section in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was originally written to a group of believers who were experiencing cultural marginalization because of their faith, because of their Christian commitment. Does that sound familiar to you? In our day, we can relate. In our day, there's not just indifference towards the gospel message anymore, which was true in the previous generation. Now there is open hostility. Maybe a generation ago, there was still even some social pressure to say that you were a Christian. Now it's just the opposite. There is social pressure to say you are not a Christian. And as our culture gets more and more cold, it feels harder to let people know that we're following Jesus. It feels more intimidating. But before we lose heart, let us be reminded of when and where Christianity first began and first spread 
2,000 years ago. The pagan Roman Empire was in power, and the culture was very hostile toward believers, and the pressure not to become a Christian was at an all-time high. It might even cost you your life. And so their Christian commitment brought cultural marginalization, and there's a dangerous temptation, friends, in a setting like that to pull away, to drift away. And so the question in this book that the writer is answering is... How do we get through this season? Why is it like this? Why, why, if God loves us so much, is this life so hard? And the answer, according to the writer to the Hebrews, is that don't you know that life is a journey? And don't you know that you're going to get through just like all the saints of old have always got through by fixing your eyes in a sustained, long-term way on the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. And so this is what they are facing, and this is the situation in which he is writing. Now, some people ask, what exactly is the book of Hebrews? What is the genre of this, this book? Is this a letter? Is it a narrative? Is this like the gospel to the Jews? And the answer to that question is, this is a sermon. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, the author himself describes it as a, quote, word of exhortation, unquote. That is a technical phrase used in the book of Acts to describe a sermon given by Paul as he is invited to give a, quote, word of exhortation in a synagogue, Acts 13, verse 15. And so some people say this may have been a sermon, perhaps even preached by the apostle Paul, maybe several times, and then transcribed into Greek, maybe by the follower of Jesus named Luke. Personally, I like that theory. We aren't sure. But inside this sermon, like all sermons, there are warnings. There are five very specific warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. Here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we look at the first warning about drifting. You don't have to memorize all these. We'll get to them over time. But then you will see the, the warning in the next passage about doubting. Then there will be a warning about dullness. Then we'll see a warning about despising the blood. And then we'll see a final warning, warning about departing from God. And we will get to these, but what I want you to notice on the screen is that these warnings get progressively more and more serious as we go through the book of Hebrews. And so today we look at warning number one, where it all starts. Join me in chapter two, verse one. The, the author says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Verse 4, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now pause there. Let me make a couple observations. Did you notice how distinctively Trinitarian the author is? Notice here we see the Lord Jesus first announcing the good news. Then we see God the Father testifying to the trustworthiness of this message. And then we see the gifts of the Holy Spirit being distributed in the church to carry out the mission of God. 
The work of salvation is the work of our triune God. Praise be to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the God we worship. And here the readers need to be reminded of who God is and how God is on their side and how God is in their corner as they sit in the ring. And so we see this Trinitarian focus. And I also want you to notice something we learn right here in this this text about the audience. We learn that this this must be a group of second-generation Christians. Notice it says that the message was confirmed to us by those who heard him. In other words, first the message was preached by the Lord Jesus, then is spread by those who heard him, meaning the apostles, and then it was confirmed to us which incidentally is one of the reasons why people say, I don't know if this could be written by Paul as he actually did have an experience of hearing and seeing the Lord Jesus. The, the, the author here puts himself in the camp of the second generation of believers. In verse four, it says the apostles spread this message and they were confirmed by signs and wonders and we see that throughout the book of Acts that signs and wonders accompanied the the message, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is the context. It's written to a group of second generation believers and that's very important because oftentimes when the first generation accepts the gospel, sometimes the second generation has a temptation to drift away from the the message that the first generation embraced. As God does not have grandchildren, we all have to have a personal experience with the gospel. And so this second generation is facing a temptation, and he gives them a warning. Notice, he says, do not drift away, verse 1, from the Christian faith. Do not drift away. That's a technical term. You need to remember that that is... Uh, the Greek word parareo, it it was a nautical term, a mariner's term, a a naval term. And it was used to describe a a, a ship which was drifted way off course. It it was used to describe a boat that wasn't properly anchored and and had drifted away. And and so the the idea here in using this term, uh, the author is saying that This drifting, you need to know, just like a boat, is something that largely would go unnoticed while it's happening. I remember going up in a hot air balloon one time, and when we were up there, we did not feel the wind because we were going exactly along with the wind. You do not notice when you are being pushed and drifted away. It is something that will happen and you will not be aware of it. The change will be almost imperceptible to you, only later would the consequences become clear? It's like when my family, we go down to the Jersey Shore, and when the kids were little, we would say, okay, go out in the water, don't go too far in, but stay in front of the lifeguard stand. And then 10 minutes later, we look out, and the kids are now 50 feet to the north, taken by the undertow or the drift in the Atlantic Ocean, and it even happens to me sometimes. I, you know, I'm out there, I'm having a good time, and then I look behind me and go, where is my umbrella? I don't, it, I'm 50 feet the wrong way. I, I drifted and I, I didn't notice. And that's the thing about drifting. You don't notice it. Drifting can happen in so many areas, like physical fitness. 
We slowly lose good habits and pick up bad habits. It's easy to do. The reason it's so easy to do is because you and I both know that missing one day of exercise really isn't a big deal. But the problem is missing that first day of exercise makes it much easier to miss the second day of exercise, and it sets up this pattern of casual neglect that can then lead to catastrophic consequences after a long time of drifting. We can drift in our fitness. We can, we can drift in our marriages. Husbands and wives can, can mechanicalize the relationship and no longer do the first things, and, and, and we, can, we can stop making time for one another, and we can, we can, drift, we can drift apart. We can drift in our marriages. We, people can drift in business. If we're not careful to keep up with market demands, just think about businesses that have drifted. Where is Blockbuster Video today? Somehow they made the transition from VHS to DVD. Uh, but something happened between DVD and the online streaming, streaming platforms with Netflix and all the rest that they did not keep up. They drifted away from the market. Businesses can drift. My, my point is we can drift in so many areas, and the same thing is true in the spiritual life. It is easy to drift away. There are a lot of reasons why we do this. We drift away sometimes because we experience some pain and suffering in our lives, and we're, we're in the ring, and we can't really understand and square our idea with a loving God and how he could allow this thing to happen to us. And so as a result, we pull away. We drift away, or, or sometimes it's just the pull and the glitter of this world, this vanity fair, and we think, you know, it's so hard to follow the Lord Jesus, it's so, it takes so much discipline, and so we start drifting away. We think, oh, the Christian life is hard, but yet the scriptures tell us that actually it's the way of the wicked that is hard. And so we drift away, and, or, or sometimes we drift away because we look around and it seems like nobody else is putting in any effort, and we go, what's the use? And so we drift away, or... Or sometimes we drift away because we want a license to behave as we want to. Hey, I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want now. And that is drifting away. Have you ever seen a spiritual leader have a moral failure? And it's so shocking. And you didn't know behind the scenes what had been happening. And you go, how could they? I'm like so confused by how they could fall from grace and shipwreck their faith in this way. I just, this is where it started. It didn't start with a big public blowout. It started with a small leak a long time earlier. This is the danger of drifting away. No, nobody wakes up and says, I think I want to shipwreck my whole ministry and my whole life and ruin everything. No. Often, it's a slow drift. Now, I want you to notice a pattern here in the first few chapters of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 2, uh, the writer's using this word drifting. Later on in chapter 3, he's going to use the word harden. And then later on in chapter 5, he's going to use the word dull. What do those three words have in common? Or let me ask it this way. What do you have to do to drift in the water? Answer, Nothing. And what do you have to do to harden clay? Answer, nothing. Just leave it out in the sun. And what do you have to do to dull a knife? Answer, nothing. Just don't sharpen it. Just don't do the regular 
maintenance on the knife. It, it, it will dull without any effort whatsoever on your part. You see the problem? Doing nothing is the problem. Doing nothing is the problem. Friends, that means this. Your greatest danger of failure in the Christian life will not be something that you do. It will be something that you don't do. If the greatest commandment is loving God and loving neighbor, then that means your greatest failure will not be something you do. It will be something you don't do. And you slowly begin to drift away. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor, says it this way. In the matter of our righteousness and justification, we can never say too often that we do nothing. It is entirely the work of Christ. Amen and amen. But, but, but once we are saved and given this new life, then the progressive work of sanctification does not call for passivity. And we are exhorted to activity. Amen. Friends, the Christian life requires all out hard work and effort on your part. It is grace-driven effort, but it requires you to fight. It is a race. It is like a marathon. The New Testament uses words like, I wrestle, I strive, I press on. This is effort. This is not complacency. Complacency is a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. It's the idea of being lukewarm, unzealous, uncommitted, settling for mediocrity. And we become far too easily satisfied. But the problem is it paralyzes us and it makes us useless for the cause of Christ. There's an old term we never use anymore called backsliding. Uh, backsliding, you know, it sounds like an old-fashioned term, right? He's a backslidden Baptist. You know, it sounds like, you know, what is that term, right? We may not use that word anymore, but it's a reality that doesn't go away. It's this idea where someone slowly but surely drifts away from their Christian commitment. The problem is there is huge consequences for drifting. Take a look with me at verses 2 and 3. The writer says, Don't you know even under the old covenant, every violation and disobedience received its just punishment? The Old Testament is rife with examples of consequences for sin. We think of people like those who died in Korah's rebellion or those who perished in the wilderness under Moses after wandering for 40 years. We think about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were slain by the Lord for offering strange fire. There is always severe punishment for disobedience under a covenant. And the point the writer is making here is what you call an argument from the, the lesser to the greater. He, he is simply saying, look, if, if people neglected the law under Moses and that had disastrous consequences, how much more will we suffer for neglecting the gospel of Jesus Christ? How will we escape? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we are not faithful to our covenant. Now that doesn't mean that we're saved by our own works, but that means that those who are truly saved will endure. 
and we will patiently persevere in the faith. That is how you know you truly are a follower of Jesus. And so the writer to the Hebrews is warning them of consequences, and we're going to talk about this later in our study, but for now, let me just remind you that in their context, the most immediate consequence facing the people who lived in the land of Israel at that time was a prediction given by the Lord Jesus that the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 was upon them. Uh, This letter was written prior to that war that the Romans waged on the Jews at that time. And if these people, the recipients of this letter, had this temptation to go back into the Jewish system in order to avoid persecution and marginalization by the Jewish leaders, the writer is saying, this, 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 is, this is not a good idea. That's not a system you want to go back to. There is consequence coming for those who would reject the Lord Jesus upon the Jewish temple, and of course, that would come to be. Instead, instead the, the writer is saying, don't go back to that old temple system. Now, put, put your face like flint and fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Focus on him. Do not drift away. Amen. Notice verse 1 gives us the solution. We must pay the most careful attention. Another technical term, uh, uh, the Greek word prosecco, it means, uh, it has a nautical implication too. It, it, it's used to describe holding a course holding the wheel on a ship so that it does not steer away or drift away. So notice the contrast with these two terms, drifting away and paying careful attention. Drifting happens all on its own. doesn't take any effort on your part whatsoever. Staying the course is quite the opposite. Staying the course requires constant daily diligence. This is so important because when we're in the middle of a trial, when we're in this ring, and we cannot control other circumstances in our lives, and we can't control other people, we have to put our attention on what we can control, and we can control where we put our focus. We can control where we fix our eyes, and the writer is saying, fix your eyes on Jesus in two different directions. First, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus in all of his divinity. Point number two, focus on Jesus as fully God. The solution to drifting in the beginning two chapters of Hebrews is that the writer is showing the readers readers, the enormity of Jesus Christ. We, like them, need a view and a perspective of Jesus that is titanic. Hebrews chapter 1 has what's called nosebleed Christology, very high Christology. The, The writer quotes about a half a dozen scriptures that tell us that Jesus is superior to everything, even the angels. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Now, at first it seems kind of odd that he's comparing Jesus to the angels, but as background, you need to know that the angels were very important to those especially who had a Jewish worldview for two reasons. Number one, they were esteemed as God's highest messengers, and number two, it was believed that the law of Moses was given through the mediation of angels. You can look up Deuteronomy 33. And so by saying Jesus is superior to even the angels, the author is saying that Jesus and his new covenant message is also superior to Moses and his old covenant message. Again, in chapter 1 and verse 6, let all God's angels worship him. Amazing. The magnitude of the claims about Jesus here are astonishing. He deserves worship, even from the angels who cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord for all ages to come. 
This Jesus is the one lifted up on a throne. He's sovereign and he is in control of the universe. Even when it doesn't feel like he's in control of the universe, we need to recognize who Jesus is. Now, as an aside, there are other groups who may esteem Jesus, but they do not esteem him highly enough. For one example of this is the group of Jehovah's Witnesses who think that Jesus is uh, an exalted creation, but not the creator, a creation of God. If, if you ever have one of these individuals come to your house on Saturday morning, say around 10 o'clock, knocking on your door, you might want to open up to this passage of Scripture with them. In fact, here's an idea. Ask them, hey, would you mind reading a verse in your Bible about Jehovah for me? Okay, sure. Look up Psalm 102 for me and have them read it to you out loud. They will say, it says, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Okay, now who's this about? Ask them, who's this talking about? This is talking about Jehovah, right? It says Jehovah in verse 1 of Psalm 102. It says Jehovah again in verse 21 of Psalm 102. This has to be Jehovah. Who else is the creator besides Jehovah? Who else is the one who never changes except Jehovah? We're talking about Jehovah here, right? Right. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And what you will see there is the exact same quotation from Psalm 102. Even in their own New World Translation, it will have a footnote that leads them back to Psalm 102. Wow. Now, at that point, as you're sharing with them, they might be shocked. But don't get boastful. Don't, don't, don't get proud. Don't gloat. Just say, may I ask you a question? If in Psalm 102 these words can only apply to Jehovah God, my question for you then is why then does the author to the Hebrews apply them to Jesus? And if they begin to listen, say, can I share with you a couple more verses from Hebrews chapter 1 about who the person of Jesus is? The point here is that Jesus is, is written about and, and given such mag magnanimous claims, the, the claims to his authority are, are they're breathtaking. When we examine the person of Jesus Christ, we find the clearest picture of God Almighty we will ever have. Amen. When God wanted to communicate with you, he didn't send information. He sent his one and only son. And Hebrews 1 says, he's the radiance of God's glory the exact imprint of his nature. I love the way Pastor Andy Stanley says it. He says, unlike all other religious gurus, Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. He came to be the best explanation of God. So Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to know what God would say here, listen to me. If you want to know how, how God would handle this situation, watch how I handle this situation. If you want to know what God would respond to this question, watch how I respond to this question. If you want to know how God would in, get involved here, watch exactly how I get involved here because you're never going to get a better picture of who God is than looking at me. Who is Jesus? He's the one who is greater than even the angels. He is truly God from God, light from light. Now, if this is true, and it is, friends, we cannot be 
mildly interested in him. If this is true, we must lay down everything at his feet and say, command me what to do. And if we want to get through the trials of this life, and as we're in the ring, if we want to get through these struggles, we have got to fix our eyes on this titanic view of Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. But that's not all. The writer goes on. As he says, you also need to focus on Jesus in his full humanity. Because in your struggle, you're going to need to know that you are not alone, that you have a Savior who can sympathize with you. Look with me as, as we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. The writer says this, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's you and me. Amen. Notice that phrase, fully human in every way. This is what theologians call the, the hypostatic union of Christ, the union of his human nature with his divine nature in the one person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Now, the reason why Christ's humanity benefits us is twofold. First of all, it is incredibly comforting to know that our Savior has experienced what we experience. We learn earlier in chapter 2, verse 11, that he's of the same family with us. We learn earlier in chapter 2, verse 14, that he's of the same flesh and blood that we are. And here we learn in chapter 2, verse 17, that he is like us in every way. That means... Therefore, that he understands everything that you are going through. He has been through loss. He has been through betrayal. He has been through it all. He had a very real human experience. He is united in our common temptation, and he is able to fully sympathize with you. See, focus on, focusing on the full humanity of Jesus is particularly important when we're struggling and suffering like these first century followers of Christ, like them, we also have to believe that we do not have a God who is removed from suffering. This is important, especially when we think about ourselves here in the ring. See, so often when we're in the middle of suffering or in the middle of the trial and we want to throw in the towel, we go, God, you know, you just don't know what this is like. But Hebrews chapter 2 is God's way of saying, actually, I do. God, you don't know how this feels, but Hebrews chapter 2 is God's way of saying, actually, I do. God, if you would only walk a day in these shoes, if you would only get in this ring, and you would know what I'm going through, and Hebrews chapter 2 is God's way of saying, actually, I have. And I'm right here in your corner, and I'm right here with you, and I want you to pick up the towel, and I don't want you to give in because I'm going to be your strength, and I'm going to be your voice of confidence, and I'm going to give you courage, and I'm going to actually live my life through you, and you can do this. Jesus is fully human, which is good news because we need a sympathetic high priest, but what's even better news than that is that as fully man, he could make atonement for our sins. 
You see, the, the, the debt of human sin was so great that only God could pay that debt. But yet, because it was mankind who did sin, only man should pay that debt. And so, therefore, Anselm said, there became a need for God to become man and make atonement and stand in our law place and be our substitute. No other religious system can offer you this. Remember Job 9.33, Job says, if only I had a mansman, if only I had an advocate, if only I had a go-between, somebody to stand between me and the Almighty. What other religious system offers you that? If you follow Islam, you cannot hold on to Muhammad as your mediator. Asking anything of Muhammad is forbidden. Do you realize what we have? We have a great high priest who offered himself as the sacrifice for sins. It's a great exchange. He lived the life that I should have lived and then died the death that I did deserve and then rose victoriously and offers me his righteousness on my account as a credit. At the end of Rocky Three, Apollo is talking to Rocky. He's about to go out and fight Clubber Lang for the second time. And, and he says, I, I want to give you a present. And Rocky says, okay, what, what do you got? And, and Apollo, you know, gives him this box. And, and inside this box are, are Apollo's colors from, from, from when he used to fight. And he says, I want, I want you to wear my colors today. Rocky says, I can't, I can't wear your colors. These are your colors. Apollo said, well, I, I've trained you. I, I brought you back to fight like I fight in a... And I want you to know that I'm right there with you in the ring versus Clubber Lang because you're going to need some skills that I bring to the table here. And I want you to be reminded of everything that I've taught you. I'm going to give you my, my colors so you can wear them in your fight. Friends, the glorious gospel, the, the picture of the exchange we receive in the Lord Jesus Christ is he says, I've gone on before you. And I lived a perfect life, and I want to give you my perfect robe of righteousness so that you can wear this in your life. You can wear it like armor. I'm going to allow you to live with my righteousness, and I'm going to allow myself to actually live through you so that the Apostle Paul says, the life I live is no longer I that live it. It is Christ living through me. He's given me his righteousness as a credit so that, so that when God looks upon me, he sees him. This is the great exchange. This is the atonement that was made by our great high priest. And so we focus on the Lord Jesus who is both fully God and fully man. And this, the solution to spiritual drifting is to look to him who is better than the angels, but to also look to him who was made just like us. May I ask you a personal question at the end of this message? Have you found yourself drifting away from the Lord Jesus? Perhaps during this pandemic, you felt yourself drifting away. I saw a statistic this last Tuesday that Barna put out that said one out of five people said, after this pandemic, I'm, I'm not interested in church engagement because I've been rethinking or drifting from my faith practice. One out of five. These are people who a year ago were fully engaged in the life of a church. One out of five is now seriously rethinking being engaged at church at all. This is not good, friends. If this is you, it is not too late. It is not too late in your spiritual life to stop drifting and to make intentional steps toward the Lord Jesus. It is not too late to come back. But you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision that the spiritual life requires effort. And here's the principle that you need to realize. There is no standing still in the Christian life. 
Either you are actively pursuing the Lord Jesus every single day or you are drifting away. Following Christ and embracing the gospel is not like getting the COVID-19 vaccine. I get my two shots and then I'm good. Once I prayed the prayer, I don't have to do anything else, right? No. It is not an inoculation gospel. It is a new life that we're given. Nothing could be farther than the truth in this kind of passivity. Following the Lord Jesus is a daily effort. It takes discipline. I fight, I follow after, I strive, I wrestle, I make every effort, 2 Peter 1. The psalmist said this, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you, God, the living God. I need God like water. Friends, I think we need this message as a church. I need this message. I want this series to be a time where we collectively just grow deeper in our faith and just turn the ship around and fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus and walk with God in a deeper way than we've ever deepened our walk with God before. And so I want to give you an acrostic to help you kind of remember uh, this message today that spells out the word drift. Number one, do not neglect your daily time with God. Let me put that on the screen for you. Do not neglect your daily time with God. Set aside a time every day to connect and focus on God. Find a place, find a time that works for you, set it aside. Do not say you don't have time. Take a look at your phone and look at your screen time. Do not say you do not have time for this. You don't have time not to do this. Nothing is more important than this. Step two, read God's word for yourself. There is no substitute for the scriptures. I encourage you to read through the book of Hebrews as we go through this series. Maybe you want to take that Proverbs devotional home with you and let that be a daily guide with you in the word of God. Read God's word for yourself. Step three, interact with other Christians. This is a time of extreme isolation. Who's your band of brothers? Who's your sorority of sisters who love you and know you enough to be rude to you for Jesus' sake? I know that people feel isolated, but pick up the phone, make sure you stay connected in fellowship. Number four, step four, fervently pray. How is your prayer life? How much time are you praying every day, every week? How can you improve your prayer life this week? Maybe you need a prayer partner to hold you accountable. I do. I personally have a prayer partner. We pray every single Thursday afternoon. We've been doing this for five years. I need that because I need to be held accountable. Maybe you need that too. Fervently pray. Do not neglect time in prayer. Step five, tell others about Christ. One thing is for sure, when I am telling others about Jesus, it really helps me to avoid the drift personally. So who's that one person in your life? Who's that one that God has placed in your life this year and he's tugging at your heart and he's prompting you saying, I want you to pursue them in love. I want you to go after them. I want you to pray for them. And the prayer in your heart is, Lord, if there's any way that you want to use me to share the good news of the gospel with them, please open up that door and I will be so faithful to walk through. Tell others about Christ. Don't drift. Friends, we're all prone to drifting. We're all prone to this temptation. 
That's why that old song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And we pray what? Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. These are kind of the basics, aren't they? But sometimes we have to get back to the basics. Let's not settle for drifting. Let's pursue Jesus who is greater than all. As the worship team comes, they're going to lead us in one more fantastic song, but I want to finish that story with which I began. After Rocky Balboa lost his title and his belt, he then turned in desperation to his former adversary, Apollo Creed, for help. Apollo challenged him. Apollo challenged him to get his old hunger back. He said, when you fought me, you had that look in your eye, that look, the eye of the tiger, you lost that. We got to get it back. So Creed takes Rocky down to the Los Angeles boxing gyms where Apollo first learned to fight himself. And he starts to whip Rocky back into shape and Rocky becomes faster than he's ever been. And eventually, after he puts on Apollo's colors, he wins the heavyweight title back at the end of the film. And friends, the spiritual lesson there in that film is that if you're drifting in your spiritual life today, the answer is just to go back to the basics to be intentional, and to pursue Jesus again, who is greater than all. Can you imagine a church full of people who took that seriously? Can you imagine a church full of brothers and sisters who are intentionally following hard after the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's be that church. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, how grateful we are. As we consider your word today, We're reminded that our hearts are always prone to drift. And so we pray again, take and seal them. Seal them for thy courts above. None of us is perfect. We all have areas in our lives that are out of balance and we've drifted. And so I believe, Holy Spirit, that you're speaking to hearts right now. And I pray, God, that we would be listening very carefully to what you are saying. Some of those areas are so painful, we can hardly even stand to think about them. But give us courage to face them and to take steps towards you right now. God, we need your help. We humble ourselves before you. We are so grateful for your grace and how many times you never give up on us. You just continue to work in our lives. I pray that each brother and sister here would sense your awesome and amazing presence in our lives today. Help us not to drift but help us instead to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who is greater than the angels and the one who also became like us. Our attention is on you, Lord. Keep us fixed on you, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.